Well, things look a little different in here this week. You probably noticed them last week. If you came last week, you saw the VBS decorations. We survived, right? All right, where are VBS leaders, teachers, helpers? All you folks, just stand up. I have a reason. Okay, here's the thing. These are the only ones allowed to sleep during the sermon. (laughs) The rest of you, you you have no excuse. They're tired, and they got up and came out. So let's thank them for their work this week. Awesome. They worked hard. Uh, Incidentally, I put them out here. I have to ask Carlos. Those vests and scuba stuff, where'd you put them? Yeah, I know, I know. I I realize it probably looked like a mess. We borrowed some, like, scuba stuff. I think all the tanks were claimed, but we had several vests and some, like, what, I don't dive, so whatever the little thing is. There's a mask. Look, you don't have to get so angry about it. I mean, I'm just trying to make a point. We have several of those. So if you let us borrow any of that, we have it. We'd like to give it back to you because it's in our way. No, just kidding. So that's that. We had a great time. It's so fun to get those kids in here. Um, the, the songs this year I really liked. I've been singing them in my head. Actually, I have the advantage of we did the same VBS in Cuba when we went in June. And so I, I've, I'm doing the Spanglish thing. Some of the words I remember, like the, the theme was submerged, but in, uh, in, in Cuba it was sumergido. Is that right? Yeah, okay, you know, I can't do that with my whatever. It's just that's how this white guy does it. But anyway, so I'm, I, they're singing submerged. I want to sing sumergido. And, and a couple of them, like uh, the motions they taught us in Cuba were pretty good, so I'm doing the wrong motions because the ones on our, our video were different. Sorry, Shelly, I like this better than this, but whatever. I guess you had to be there. Anyway, um, so we had a great time. You see the kids, and, and they, they want to, to, in that week, express themselves so great. Uh, and, and so we just had a great time. We had about an 8% uptick in attendance and enrollment this year, so that was encouraging. That was good, and we hope that continues in, in future years. So thank you for uh, putting up with the mess around last week, whether it was in here, in your classrooms, because, you know, things just kind of go. And we think... We hope, we pray, we've sort of cleaned it up pretty much so everything's back to mostly normal, as if there is that in this part of the world. But anyway, nonetheless. So, so that was it. And one of the things that I, I was just mentioning that I love, and we kind of started talking about last week, is to watch the kids worship. When we come in here for worship rally and see them get so excited about the songs, we go to music and see them expressing in the way they do uh, their their praise to God. There's something pure about that, something neat to be a part of that. And, and so it kind of really fit nicely with, with the emphasis I've wanted to take for these next few weeks on worship, because what is the reality, and sort of what we tried to get at last week, is all of us worship something. We're created in a way that, that we are expressing our love and devotion and adoration to something. Not necessarily God in some cases, but everywhere you go in our world, people are worshiping something. It doesn't even have to be in religious ways. You can choose to put something as the focus of your life, the highest point of your life that you direct your life toward. We talked about your your attention, your thoughts, your time, your monies, those things that you devote your life to. This week, a lot of people devoted their lives to a spiny scavenger that crawls along the bottom. 
Anyone catch any? Anyone want to admit catching any? Like two people? Because you were all so concerned about VBS, you didn't want to be worried about that. Really? Only two of you in here? Come on, you can be honest. How many of you caught lobster this week? Four. Wow, you are a spiritually minded crowd. I am impressed. Obviously, you're on the right thing. Well, okay. There we go. And there's a lot of things like that in our world that, that are pulling at our attention, pulling at our devotion. Um, and, and, and as I said, that's because we're made in a way to worship. I want to talk today uh, about, in, in some ways, kind of the beginnings of worship, or maybe ask the question this way, who was the first worshiper? And to do that, we're going to look at some, some interesting passages in Scripture. We're going to look at Isaiah 14 is where we're going to start. If you want to kind of turn there, Isaiah chapter 14 is where we'll look. Uh, I want to talk today about the archangel Lucifer. Ooh, yeah. There are, th- there are three archangels, typically, that we think about in Scripture. Gabriel is maybe the, the one that we, we think about the most, probably because of uh, the presence in the Christmas story, the messenger that comes to Mary and informs her that she's going to, to give birth to the Savior, the Son of God, uh, Gabriel being that one. It seems to be Gabriel's role a lot of times, the one that, that brings the, the words from God, the messages from God. Another archangel, excuse me, is Michael. Michael shows up in the book of Daniel, is maybe where you think about that. One of my favorite passages about the archangel Michael is in Daniel, where he shows up and tells Daniel, I responded when you first started praying, but there was this war that happens. I had to battle for three weeks, for 21 days, from the day you prayed till the time I get here now. And, and, and Michael battled the spiritual battle in the heavenlies to finally come. But I love that part that, that he says, as soon as you started praying, I responded. And, and, and a lot of times we associate Michael with that idea of, of prayer and the, the battles in the heavenlies, the, the spiritual warfare that, that prayer involves. And then the third uh, of the angels is Lucifer. We think of him differently because he kind of lost his place in heaven. He lost, and that's what we'll look at in Isaiah chapter uh, 14 in just a minute. Lucifer, though, I believe, was the, the, the archangel that was sort of the worship leader of heaven. And you'll see some of the reasons why as we look at a couple of passages today. I, I think when you look at those three key figures in, in the, the created order of angels, the three archangels, you see kind of the three emphases that they're important. The message of God or the word of God, that would be pretty important. Prayer pretty important, lasts forever. Those two things last forever. And then worship, the fact that in heaven, forever and ever and ever, worship will be what we're about. And so those three angels kind of headed up those three things that that are most important to us. But we see with Lucifer, a problem arises. Lucifer was uniquely created, as we'll see, for worship. In Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verse 12, this is what scripture tells us. Verse 12 says this, How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds 
I will make myself like the Most High. Now, if you were describing the direction of those verses, which way is Lucifer trying to go? He's moving up, isn't he? I mean, just, just look at the, the words that, that, are, that are mentioned there. Even in this verse, what does he call God? The name he uses for God, the Most High. And he almost resents that God is the Most High, that God's at the top of the pyramid. And, and throughout this passage, it says, I will ascend, I will raise, I will sit enthroned of the utmost heights. I will ascend again in verse 14. Lucifer's movement in this passage is trying to somehow go up, 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 even usurping God. But if we were to go to Philippians chapter 2, we see this hymn to Jesus. And you know the movement in that hymn is the exact opposite. It says in Philippians 2, though Jesus was equal with God, he didn't consider equality with God something to hold on to. But he emptied himself or humbled himself, made himself of no reputation, taking the very form of a servant. You see, his progression isn't up, 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 but humbling, 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 humbling. You want to get a a quick view of your life? You want to get a quick view of which team you're playing for? What's the direction that you're going in? When you think about your life in relation to God, are you always going up, 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 up? Guess which side that puts you on. Are you always looking for ways to humble and serve and move down, below, below, down, down, down? That's big contrast. Now, Jesus deserved it, and yet he emptied himself. And so we see in Isaiah 14 the, the, the problem with this archangel Lucifer, that, that he thought, got, kind of got the big head, right? Thought he was bigger even than God, and, and he wanted to take the highest place. He wanted to move up, 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 and his whole life since then, it says how you have fallen. We know that God cast him down, and we'll look at that in just a few minutes, but we know that after he was cast down, that even now he is trying to do exactly what he was trying to do there. And he's trying to do it among us. He's trying to convince us that God does not occupy the most high spot. And anything that, that Satan can do to convince us to move God down and to move ourselves or anything else up, in, in, in its essence, takes worship away from the only one who adores it, God himself, and puts it indirectly even on Satan. And we don't want to do that, right? We're in church. <laughs> we, we would think that's not what we want to do. But that's what's happening. And so anytime we make that great exchange we talked about last week, exchange the truth of God for a lie, exchange the created for the creator, we have somehow indirectly at least, if not directly, given Satan the glory he's wanted before the creation of everything. And so that is why we have to be careful. In fact, when Satan approaches Jesus, one of the temptations was what? I want you to bow down and worship me. Took him up, said, look at over all this. If you will worship me, I will give you everything you see. Now, now I think that's a legit temptation because when, when the New Testament talks about Satan, it talks about the God of this age or the prince of the world, those sorts of things. There's a dominion here on on earth that Satan has a bit of authority in. And so in some ways he had the right to offer that to Jesus. And it's exactly what he was doing here in Isaiah 14, asking God to somehow 
subjugate himself so that Satan would be elevated. Of course, Jesus said, nope, you only worship God and him alone. It's the only way it works. And so we see this is Satan's sort of M.O. It's, it's how he works. He always wants to put himself and really anything over God, any way to, to move God down the priority list. He wins. I want to look at another passage. It's over in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel's a fun book, by the way. It's a little bit odd at times, I'll admit that. But Ezekiel's kind of a, a fun book. It's got these, these uh, prophetic visions, this kind of apocalyptic literature sense to it. I, I mentioned it several weeks ago. We looked at, I think it was 47 or so. It, it's, it's a fascinating book. In Ezekiel 28, we also see uh, some reference here to uh, the devil, beginning in verse 12. Is that the right chapter? Yes, there it is. Verse 11 says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him. Now, now real quick, you're saying, well, well, preacher, you're telling me this is about Lucifer. That says the king of Tyre. Where, where is he really quickly? That what's happening here isn't he's talking about a human. He's talking about the devil. And that's, that happens sometimes. Sometimes God addresses not the individual, but the spirit behind the individual, the best one and probably the most familiar one to all of us is right after Peter makes this great confession, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and then after Jesus says some laudatory things to him, Peter comes back at Jesus about that whole you're going to have to die thing. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Not because Peter's Satan, but because the spirit behind those words is Satan. So that's what's happening here. It's addressed to the king of Tyre, but the spirit behind the king, and you'll see very clearly this can't be a human being that's living at this time, is, is who's really in mind. He said, this is what the sovereign Lord says. So pay attention, right? Sovereign Lord's going to speak. You better listen. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And then verse 13, you were in Eden. So obviously the king of Tyre in Ezekiel's day couldn't have been in Eden. That's in mind the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve. You were in Eden, it says, the garden of God. Now listen to how it describes uh, this, this being. Every precious stone adorned you. And then it lists them, ruby, topaz, emerald, chrysolite, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold on the day you were created. They were prepared. Now quick right there, you were created. Remember, even the angels are created beings. Angels aren't eternal. God created even these powerful archangels like Lucifer and Gabriel and Michael. They were created beings. And so it's very quick there. But then I want to point out this phrase, your settings and mountings were made of gold. Now, you might think because they just listed all those jewels, it has to do with, you know, like the way those jewels are set. But uh, the, the King James has an interesting thing. That, that version says your timbrels and pipes what are timbrels and pipes? They're musical instruments, which would make sense in the realm of worship. Your timbrels and pipes were made of gold on the day you were created. They were prepared. Let's, let's keep going to the next uh, verse. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. Satan is anointed as the, as the archangel Lucifer. He was anointed uniquely. And particularly in the area of worship, I believe, was his, his realm. And so he was before God to offer worship, which was worthy of God, even musical worship to God. And God uniquely anointed him in that role. Have you noticed music is powerful? 
It's very powerful. Music has an effect on people. You can listen to music, and whether you want to or not, sometimes you move. Now, let me, let me just be clear. Some of you move like this. It's like just your big toe. I don't want anybody to know I'm moving. And some of you are moving, you know. I've seen you at concerts. You're moving. I haven't seen all of you at concerts. I've seen some of you at concerts. You, you, you're getting music. It kind of gets a hold of you. you. You turn up. You can feel music physically, the vibrations. It, can, it has a way to affect us. I think part of that is because in the beginning, the creation of this guardian cherub, this Lucifer, this archangel, God anointed him in worship and, and this way of music to move us. He goes on and says, You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. There's our trade, trading the truth of God for a lie, trading the created for the creator, the creator for the created things. That's the trade Satan is always trying to get us to make as well. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. Just huge imagery there of what has happened. Now, now by the way, Jesus gives us kind of his account of this sort of thing. Um, the, the disciples come back to Jesus, and they said, we're amazed that even the demons kind of listened to us. They were, they were just mind-blown that, that in their world, the demonic forces were so powerful and, and caused such havoc in lives that they could go and somehow drive out these demonic forces. And Jesus says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, let me just tell you why I want to say this. Don't get the idea in your mind that there are two cosmic superpowers that are battling it out for control. There's one cosmic superpower. He is God Almighty, and Satan's power pales in comparison to him. The battle between Satan and God was like a flash of lightning. If they were to make a movie about that moment, it would be so quick you couldn't even see it. You would sit down in the theater, you go, flash, and then the credits would roll. And all the credits would say, God Almighty, Yahweh, Elohim, Adonai. It'd just roll, roll, roll. That's all you'd see. It'd be over. That's it. Understand, your God is awesome. And this Satan, this Lucifer, though he is created and anointed, he is nothing compared to God Almighty. But he is powerful. And he does and has wreaked havoc among us as humans. And we have to be aware of that. And one of the ways that it has happened, I think, is through music. I'm just going to throw it out there. Satan was anointed in the area of worship, particularly music. It says here, your timbrels and pipes. There's two kinds of instruments, like wind instruments. And timbrels would be like a tambourine. That's, I think, technically a percussion instrument. If we were to go back to Isaiah 14, verse 11, it talks about stringed instruments. And, and as I think about music, those, that kind of covers just about every instrument that there is. You have your strings, you have your winds, and you have your percussion, right? It's kind of 
you're looking at an orchestra, I think they have you know, brass and woodwinds, but they're basically winds, percussion, and strings. And that kind of covers everything, doesn't it? Satan has at his disposal, we might say, every type of musical instrument because he was the angel created to offer this high worship of God. The first worshiper of God was going to be Satan. He was going to exalt God for who he really was. And so he had within him those things. And when he got cast out of heaven, he has used that same anointing among music, I think, still today. Statistically, just throw this out there, um, there was... You've probably heard of Ozzy Osbourne. Sharon, right? You know that sort of thing. A <laughs> few of you. Pro- or biting the head off the bat. He was with Black Sabbath in 1980. One of the songs on their album that came out in 1980 was a song called Suicide Solution. How's that for happy music, right? <laughs> heavy metal music. Um, you think, what's the big deal? Well, if you look at the suicide rates in the 70s to the 80s, between 15 and 24-year-olds, the rate goes up by about 25 to 30%. I mean, there, there, there's sort of a, a leveling, and then in 1980, it kind of goes up. Now, you could say, is that cause and effect? Maybe, maybe it's just looking at, you know, sometimes something that happens before another doesn't always cause it, but if we believe that there's power in music, and you know because I bet everyone here has been moved by music at one point in your life, a song. You have your special song with your sweetie. Yeah. I'll pray for you. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, so Satan's anointed in this area of music. Music has power. It's shaped our culture at times. He still uses it. He makes that trade. And music is a one way he pulls people away from God to worship something else. So God created this angelic being, this archangel, to be his worship leader, his chief worshiper. He's thrown him down, so who's going to take his place? Well, let's look around. Can we find somebody? Let's think about us as human beings. This is kind of interesting. I read this, I'm like, huh. Now, I'm not a doctor, and I know we have nurses and doctors here. Nurses, is that even a word? Nurses. So if I'm, I'm way off, just approach me later. Don't know. I'm just kidding. But I think about hu- you as a human being, and I think, you know, we kind of have all three of those categories of musical instruments built in us. Do we have wind instruments in us? We have lungs, right? I heard you earlier. You were singing. You were using the the wind instrument of your lungs to make it. And how are you singing? Because in the back of your throat, you have vocal cords, which act sort of like string instruments. When the, when the wind goes upon them, they vibrate, much like a string of guitar or a piano or a harp, when the vibration creates the sound. So, okay, pr- okay Ch- Charles, that makes sense. What about percussion? I know this is a Baptist church, but sometimes we get our hands out in front of us, right? Like, I don't do that. Sometimes you do. When your team scores a touchdown, you praise with percussion. Go Steelers? Okay. Roll Tide. There we go. We have the capacity in us to offer the worship to God that is rightfully his. Why, why do we need to do that? Well, well let, me, let me go here because I think we need to get a hold of the, the reality of why worship from us as human beings 
means so much. It puts us in the right place with God. In fact, I think we were created to and for worship. If we were to go way back to the beginning, if we were to go way back to the acts of creation, we see kind of two categories in Genesis 1 and 2 of things that are created. There's the things that are created out of nothing, and God said, let there be, and there was. And then there are other things that God makes out of stuff that's already there. So like in Genesis 1.11, God doesn't say, let there be trees and plants. No, he actually says, let them come forth, let the ground, the earth that he created, produce vegetation. You say, what, what does that got to do with anything? Well, there's a difference there, because what happens when, when you're created out of nothing, that, that's that. But when you're made from something else, there exists a relationship between the thing that's made and the thing it was made from. Does that make sense? Like, for instance, the, the land produces vegetation. The vegetation is connected and dependent upon the land, right? The ground. You take a tree and pull it out of the ground, it's got a problem because its roots are in the ground. It gets its, its, its nourishment. It gets its water from the ground because it came from the ground. And at the end of its life cycle, it will decompose and become what? The ground. Makes sense. We think of ladies. How were women made? They weren't created, like God said, let there be women. And Adam said, whoa, man. See, come on, man. Okay, maybe not. I've used that before. Some of you like, you said that. Okay, whatever. But no, what did God do? God, a deep sleep to come over the man. He took one of his ribs and formed the woman from the rib. So there's a relationship that's unique between man and woman. From the very first pages of creation, in the earliest days, that's how it works. How was mankind, how was humans, humans, how was humans, how were humans? Subject, verb, agreement, right? How were humans made? They weren't created. God didn't say, and let there be people. No, what did he do to make Adam? Well, you say, well, he made him out of dust, which seems like a really bad point for my sermon because you would think I'm trying to make a connection between mankind and God. Well, that's true. He made our body out of dust. He fashioned dust and ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We have that kind of a thing that we say. But what then did God do? Let us make man in our image. And it says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. So there's something about a human being that is connected to the God who gave it life, that breath of life. And just like when you take a tree and move it from the ground it came from and put it over here, it's going to die. A human being removed from God who gave us the breath of life ultimately is going to die, which is why he said to Adam and Eve, if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. It didn't mean on the, they're going to drop dead as soon as they ate the fruit. No, you, he, he's saying to Adam and Eve, you're going to disconnect from me who gave you the breath of life. And the moment you do that, your destiny is death. That's kind of what's at issue there. And so we as human beings were made, yes, from dirt, but that unique image of God that comes from that direct interaction of God breathing into us the breath of life so that we become a living soul means that there's something about us that is connected to and dependent upon God. 
And we can't divorce ourselves from that connection any more than we can divorce our bodies from the connection to the earth. Because if you're going to live, you're going to need nourishment, and most of the nourishment you get comes from where? The earth. You say, well, I eat a cow. Well, the cow, the cow get his nourishment. You ate the earth, and you ate the cow. And it just kind of, the body is sustained by those nutritious things that we get. Might be why, incidentally, sometimes the things that come from the earth are healthier for you than the things that don't. But that's another story that I obviously haven't mastered yet, so I don't want to be a hypocrite. Okay, <laughs> moving on. So, you were made uniquely, yes? But that, that, that two-sided thing... And so we're made that way, and that implies we were made uniquely for a relationship with God. Right? Does that make sense? Makes a lot of sense to me. But I studied all week, and so you're just getting this for the first time. But, but, but let, me, let me do this, and what does that mean? So, so here's the question. What does that relationship look like? Because a lot of people think our relationship to God looks very formal. That we come to a building on certain days a week for a certain amount of time, and we, formal, we have formal visitation with God. That's what this is. You know, this is our visitation rights. I got I to go to church because, you know, I, I got to pay homage to God. But that's not what it should look like. In fact, God gives us the picture of what it should look like. When he says in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, he says kind of this picture of marriage, let me, let me turn there real quick, Ephesians 5, verse 22, no, that's not right, verse 31, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, okay, we get that, that we just talked about the relationship between man and woman because of the created relationship, woman taken from the rib, but what does it say in the next verse, this is the weird thing, that kind of left turn, he says in verse 32, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about what? Is he talking about marriage? No, he says, I'm talking about Christ and the church. So if you want to know what is the picture of our relationship with God, it's not kind of a formal thing. It's an intimate picture that's best described in marriage. And by the way, this analogy stretches throughout Scripture. Jesus kind of says a lot of things about it. He says in John chapter 14, you may remember this, he says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. Right? In my Father's house are many mansions. And I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am you may be also. And we're like, oh, that's great. We're going to go to heaven one day. Yeah. Understand, this is all out of Jewish wedding custom. Because we don't see that in our day, because you know, most of us aren't Jewish and don't come out of that thing. But, but here's how it worked in that day. If I was going to be married to a young lady... My, the two families would talk, they would get together, and they would negotiate the marriage. It's a horrible word, right? But nonetheless, that's kind of how it worked. And there would be a dowry involved, right? There's usually some sort of price. In this picture of Christ and the church, there's a dowry involved. There's a price that has been paid to secure this marriage. The price was the blood of Jesus himself. He paid the dowry. And then once that engagement period starts, that betrothal period, Mary and Joseph, right, that time when, when they've decided that they're going to be married and she's betrothed to him, and so just as binding as marriage, what would happen is the man would go back and prepare the marital home. 
Often it would be just an extension of his parents' home at times, or nearby. And he would build for his wife the place that would be their marital home. And when that place was ready, he would then go back and get his wife, but he would do it in a very unique way. Usually in the middle of the night, he would start a parade with his buddies from that house he's prepared. And he would go across town, and they'd be making all sorts of happy noises as they'd go to his bride's house. In the middle of the night, go to his bride's house. By the way, Jesus tells a parable. He says, uh, there are these virgins, and, and they're part of a bridal party. And some of them, when the bridegroom comes in the middle of the night, are ready. They have oil for their lamps. They're able to light their lamps and enter the parade. But others of the virgins aren't ready. These are like the bridesmaids. They didn't prepare. They didn't have oil for their lamps, and so they missed the party. That's a picture of Jewish wedding custom. That means the, the bridegroom has gone for his bride unannounced. He, she doesn't know when the house is finished. He doesn't like send out invitations months in advance, save the date and all that. It's just, just kind of a, a spur of the moment, which is, by the way, what is that moment for us? It's the rapture of the church. No one knows the day or the hour. We talked about it a few days ago. One day, and, and the point of Scripture is you just better be ready because you don't know when it's going to happen, which is the point of that parable of the virgins with the lights and all sorts of other things Jesus said. It's a wedding analogy. And so the bridegroom comes, big party, middle of the night, they go back, they have the ceremony. And what happens after the ceremony? The reception. Big party. Revelation 21, the wedding feast of the Lamb. Jesus comes back, raptures his church. We go into eternity, and there's this huge party, this huge wedding reception, the wedding feast of the Lamb. Paul says, look, I'm talking about marriage Man, leave his father and mother, be united one flesh. But it's bigger than that. It's so much bigger. It's about Christ and his church. What's the greatest commandment? Go to church, right? No, that's not it. What's the greatest commandment? Give me a second. Obey. The greatest commandment has got to be obey God. That's why women obey their husbands in the marriage vows, right? I thought I'd get an amen or seven. No, that's why it's not in there. Right? Oh, no, that's not it. The greatest commandment is, you can answer now, I'm, to love the Lord your God. Because we are created for relationship. And the picture of that relationship is the love relationship between husband and wife here on this. That's the picture that God wants. In fact, there's a word that God uses. I've used it all, all day, but there's a word that the New Testament uses that talks about what that love looks like, and it's the word worship. But what's fascinating is the most popular Greek word for worship in the New Testament. It's found in John chapter 4, which is the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. We looked at that in Bible school, day 3. Yeah, okay, <laughs> making sure. Day 3, we talked about the woman at the well. And the word worship shows up in there, and the word in Greek, I don't know, I didn't put it on the screen or anything, the word is proskuneo, which is an interesting word. Here's what, what it says as, as Jesus is having this exchange with the woman at the well. He says to her in John chapter 4, verse 23, that, that when we worship in spirit and in truth, we become the kind of worshipers that God seeks. There's the verse. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers, proskuneo, will worship, proskuneo, the Father, in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers, proskuneo, that the Father seeks. 
Now that word is fascinating. The word has at its root, you might have some ideas. I don't know if you know this. The word has at its root, the word cuneo, it's a compound word between pros and cuneo. The word cuneo means to kiss. And this word, proscuneo, took upon it the idea of kissing the ground in front of uh, a king, but that's not the root there. The root of that kiss is, I love this, like a dog licking his master's hand. Like in my Greek lexicon, like a dog licking his master's hand. Who has a dog? Got a dog? Okay, let's talk about this. What happens when you go home? Do they get happy? We have dance. You've probably all heard dance. Dance is loud. I'm sorry. But when Denise's mom is around, I don't know what it is. Dance makes this noise. And it is the most obnoxious. No- it is this whine, bark thing. And as soon as we hear it, we know, yep, Nana's here. She's outside somewhere. Used before she was living there, she would pull up at church on a Sunday, get out of her car, and dance would start from across the parking lot because he knew she was here. I don't know if he, she, she heard the sound of the car or she smelled the, the smell of Nana or whatever it was. Just all this nonsense. It's just crazy. Denise, when she comes home, dance goes nuts. I mean, she wants to jump and kiss and lick. And, and I don't know, maybe this is bad, but a few times Denise has been known to say things like, well, at least somebody's glad I'm home. <laughs> but, but see, here's what I've learned. This is an aside. This is free. If you want to know who loves you more, your dog or your spouse, here's a, lock them in the trunk of the car. Come back in an hour and see who's happy to see you. I'm just saying. Try it. Actually, don't try it. Please don't try it. Don't do that. But, but that's at the root of this. You, you see that. We all have that, that idea, you know, that, that when, the, when the dog is, is the master's home, the dog is aware and the dog's excited. I've missed you all day. And they're, they're, I mean, that's, that should be our reaction to God. That's the picture that, that Jesus, that, that word paints that's used more times in the New Testament than any other word for worship. This word, proscuneo, to kiss the ground in front of as a dog licks a master's hand, to say, I get to worship today. I'm so excited to be with my master. I can't wait to be with my God. God is worthy, and I've, I've missed my time with him, and I can't wait to be in his presence. That, that desire, that urgency, that, that view of the worth and the beauty and the magnitude of your God that overcomes you, and, and like a dog, you can't control yourself because your master you're in your master's presence. That's the picture that, that's painted for us in Scripture of the, the way God encourages us. In fact, it says those are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. We looked last week, and what did we say? God's eyes are searching to and fro about the earth, seeking for those whose heart he can strengthen. This, this week, we see another verse that says, hey, God is looking God is searching for those whose hearts worship him in spirit and in truth. You know, we think, oh, I want to find God. No, God is looking for you if you get your heart right. If you see him for who he is, he he becomes that thing. Just as the beginning of creation, when he made Lucifer the angel to worship him, he's created us with the same capacities that somehow Lucifer had so that we could offer to God the worship 
that he is rightfully due. And when we offer that, not in a formal way, not in a, oh, I've got to do this today, not like he's some faceless, can't see him being way out there, but knowing that this God says, I want you to love me. When we approach him in that way, he seeks that kind of thing. He zeroes in on it. He looks it up. He finds it. He finds you. It's an incredible thing that privilege we have, even from the way we are created, to be able to be in relationship with an eternal, holy God who is surrounded day and night by creatures that are too marvelous for us. I know they're marvelous because when people see them in the Bible, they fall on their face as though dead because these angelic beings are so impressive. And the shepherds, as the angels show up, what are they doing? They're cowering. In, they, were, they were so afraid it hurt. They were sore afraid. I think that's what that means. They're like, it just hurts to be in your presence. These angels surrounding God, fiery cherubs and seraphim and all of this, they're around them, and they're praising God all day long. Holy, holy, holy. You'd think you'd get tired of it, right? No, 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 because we are unique. Those angels, yes, he created, but not in the way he created you. When he breathed into you his very breath of life so that you uniquely had the capacity to worship him. There's a lot of things that are going to compete to get in there. But I hope as you think about what we've talked about today, you'll see that there's nothing that compares to him. A lot competes, but nothing compares. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning for the goodness of that you have expressed to us through the gift of Jesus, that in him, by his shed blood, we can be forgiven of our sin. We can be adopted as your children. God, that we can then enter into a relationship with you that we were created for. I think one of the saddest verses in the Bible for me, Father, is the one that says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have I not prophesied in your name and your name cast out devils and I will say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. Jesus, you tell us yourself that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and your son, whom you have sent. And as Paul said in Ephesians, when he gave us that picture of marriage and all of the parables in Scripture that point to the, the bigger meaning of marriage, not only between husband and wife, but between Christ and the church, between the bride and the bridegroom that leads one day to that eternal place of worship, and feasting, and celebration, the wedding supper of the Lamb. God, today we pray that if there is someone here who does not know you as Savior, who might have gone through all the religious motions, had that formal, sort of distant relationship with you, but today they've heard the call 
to something more. And that today they can recognize that you have paid the price, you've paid the dowry by the blood of Jesus on the cross. And you offer us salvation. God, today, if there's anyone who needs to turn to you in faith, I pray that they will, even in this moment, cry out to you, admitting they're a sinner, confessing their need for a Savior, and placing their faith in in your Son as Savior and Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you still hear, that you still answer prayer, that you still save. And thank you, above all, that you are worthy to receive all the glory and the honor and the praise. May we live our lives in a way that sees you and celebrates you as the most high God. May we be the kind of worshipers, those who worship in spirit and truth that you are seeking. For we pray these things in Jesus' name.